This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hey, good morning. What a great time of worship, and Diva always kills it. Don't you love Diva? Yeah, 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 yeah. Who else would walk out to, what are you going to say to the bad boys, right? Yes. Listen, we are, we are going to have some fun over the next four weeks. This is the beginning of our Easter series. And for the next three weeks, we're, we're going to be looking at people that, uh, that are called the bad boys of Easter. And I, I just want to say up front, I'm going to call them our bad boy friends. And I'll tell you why in a minute. All right? So, uh, but I, first of all, I want to say something to those of you who are brand new to new life. Um, I want to say a welcome. It's a big risk when you come here for the first time. You know you're going to walk into a crowd that you might not know anybody except for the person that you came with, if you came with somebody. You know that we're probably going to sing songs you've never heard before or don't know, and you won't know what to do. And you're probably not going to get a playbook on the way in that tells you when to stand up and when to sit down. It's a big risk. So I just want you to know we don't take that lightly. So welcome to the gang. If you're here, you're part of us. And hey, let's give it up for our new people this morning. Somebody asked me this morning, how are you? And I said, you know, I feel really great. I have a piece of a voice. And if I can get through the morning without coughing all over the crowd, it will be a win. So um, uh, I'm very excited to be here. And I'm very excited to talk to us this morning about a subject that's really important. Really important. Okay? So first of all, let's talk about the bad boys. And I'll... I'll crank this up. At least I think I will. There we go. If you're not a Christ follower, if someone said to you, do you follow Jesus with your life? And you say, well, no, not really. I'm not even sure I believe in God. If you're anything other than a regular church goer, I know that one of the things that baffles you about people who call themselves Christians is that we often resist the God that we say we trust. You see us do it. I used to, when I grew up, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor and and I used to go to little kids' classes and we used to sing this little ditty that went, why worry when you can pray? But most often in the lives of the people I was around, and including my own, most often that got translated like this. Why worry when you could pray and worry? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you see uh, those of us who call ourselves Christians sometimes reach out and take control of things because even you know that we're actually afraid to trust God with that. 
The reason we're calling these the bad boys of Easter and the reason I'm calling them our bad boy friends is because there's something about human nature that would be good for us to know on the way in. Even though we all look different, even though we may have different ethnicities, even though we're of different genders, we're all way more alike than we are different. It's sometimes the thing that we call the common human pathos. In our church, we have Indonesians and people from Fiji and people from Germany and people from Ireland and people of African descent, people of Filipino descent and and people of Mexican descent and people of Spanish descent. And the list is actually quite long. And the interesting thing is you and I are going to learn some lessons from three Jewish guys who lived 2,000 years ago. How can we do that? Don't ever forget this, that all people struggle with the same basic issues. They always have, and they always will. Which is why when you walked in the door of the church this morning, I hope you felt that the ground was level. Because there's not a single person in here, including myself, that doesn't have the same issues and struggles in life as everybody else. Now, we often resist, unfortunately, the God that we say that we trust. In the end, each of these three guys and you and I ourselves will end up illustrating in life this principle, the futility of resisting God. Not because God is large and in charge and he's going to enforce and impose his will on all the rest of us, although he could, and someday in the end he will. But do you remember your parents ever saying to you, well, you can do that if you want, but I don't think you're going to like how that turns out. And you went, oh, yeah. We think of that on the negative side. I still remember vividly a time in my life, I was like six or seven, and we were driving through Nebraska, and we stopped to get gas, and in the garage section of the gas station was an antique fire truck. I'm talking about the open air cockpit kind of antique fire truck with the ladders that went down the side, and and my dad talked to the owner, and they came out and said, you want to go for a ride on a fire engine? Man, when you're six or seven, that's what you want. But I took one look at that fire engine, and on the top of it was a gigantic bell. And on the front of it was this chrome thing that was about this big around, and I knew it was a siren, and sirens hurt my ears. I said, no, really, for the next 10 minutes, my dad and this guy kept trying to convince me to get up on that fire engine and take a ride. And the more they encouraged me, the more I resisted. We finally got in our car and drove off. And it would be 60 years before I got my first ride on a fire engine. 
It was cool. I was a chaplain doing a ride along uh, on, the, on one of the fire trucks here in Petaluma. But you know something? Yeah. The parents that I thought I trusted and I wanted to trust, somehow in that moment, I resisted them. Yeah. And in the end, when we resist God, here's, here's what happens to us. Because God knows best. When we resist, we always get what? Less. Would you read that out loud with me? Ready? Let's read together. God knows best. And when we resist, we always get less. And if, if that's all you got this morning, that is this message in a nutshell. Now, the guy we're going to talk about was Caiaphas, or as David called him, Caiaphas. Could be either one or something even different. I don't know. I wasn't alive, alive 2,000 years ago, believe it or not. And so um, we're, I'm going to call him Caiaphas. <clears throat> Caiaphas is an interesting guy, okay? Caiaphas was born into a family that was a dynasty in Jewish leadership. In the nation of Israel, he was the most prominent person because he was born into the most prominent family. And the rough equivalent of Caiaphas in our times would be if we had a family that... So their government was set up where the high priest was in charge of the temple, which was the, the, the center of all religion... The high priest was also in charge of the Sanhedrin, which would be like our Congress and Supreme Court put together. So it would be like the high priest is the head of the religion. He's also the president of the country. He's also the the majority leader in the Senate and the Speaker of the House and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Okay? Okay. And on top of that, he was the ambassador or liaison to Rome who ruled the world. Now, Caiaphas was born into this family and groomed for this position. And for more than four decades, his family occupied every major religious and political position in the country. His father-in-law was high priest. He had five brothers-in-law who were all high priests at different times. And Caiaphas comes along toward the end of this 40-year dynasty. And he inherits all of that power. But you know, with that kind of power, there comes some huge obligations. Sort of like this. And buddy, you better not blow it. You better hang on to this and you better preserve it. Caiaphas was the richest person in Israel. All Jews had to pay a temple tax every year. And you know, normally when it comes to taxes... People who collect them find ways 
to raise them. Have you noticed that? Yeah. So God set in the law how much the temple tax was supposed to be, and it was a particular, particular amount of silver. Well, Caiaphas' family had decided, eh, he can't ever raise that. That's a bummer. So what they did is they minted a temple coin, and you could only pay the temple tax with the temple coin. And then they could set the amount that the temple coin cost. And his family made millions every year by just collecting the temple tax. So that's Caiaphas. Life is good. Everybody loves, or he thinks so, Caiaphas, until a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi shows up on the scene. And so Caiaphas' real name was Joseph Caiaphas, which is sort of interesting because Jesus' earthly father was also called Joseph. It's it's pretty interesting contrast. The problem with Jesus, the problems that he brought were three. Number one, Jesus drew extraordinary crowds. Everywhere Jesus went, there were hundreds of people and sometimes and even oftentimes thousands of people. He could be in the city and there was just this moving mass of humanity and you could be sure somewhere in the middle of that moving mass of humanity, that was Jesus. He could be out on the countryside. There's still this mass of humanity and there's Jesus. He could be up on a mountain. He could be out in the desert. It literally made no difference. He could be in the temple grounds. There was always the crowds that were around Jesus. And Caiaphas couldn't help but notice he never drew a crowd. And Jesus always did. Caiaphas would walk around with his high priestly garb on and people would literally scatter. And the only time they ever listened to Caiaphas was at a festival. And the only reason they were there is because it was mandated by law. And yet here was Jesus. If Caiaphas was the most prominent person in Israel, the one thing Caiaphas knew, Jesus was the most popular. And that was a problem. The second thing about Jesus, and that is Jesus spoke and acted with extraordinary authority. Now, this is not military kind of authority. Jesus didn't stand up and order people around or he would have had no crowd, right? Nobody comes to that. But when Jesus spoke, there was something about him that made every word that he spoke believable. And he could say the most radical things and people accepted them. Like Jesus could say this thing about you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and that makes sense to everybody. But I say to you, if someone hits you on the right cheek, the best thing you could do is offer your left one as well. And people would listen to that. 
And not only did he speak with authority, he acted with authority. He could speak to those who, who were deaf and the deaf could hear. He could speak to those who were lame and the lame could walk. He demonstrated his power by walking on the water. He demonstrated his power and his authority over everything that you could find in this world. And what was even tougher for Caiaphas was when someone speaks and acts with that sort of authority and assurance They're almost impossible to intimidate. And all of his life, Caiaphas had maintained his power by intimidating those in his world. But there was something about this Jewish carpenter who had turned rabbi that you could never intimidate. And the third thing about Jesus that really bothered Caiaphas is Jesus was extraordinarily critical of religious leaders. Jesus didn't go out of his way to criticize them. In fact, Jesus didn't say anything that the crowds didn't already know. The problem was the crowds were all intimidated by Caiaphas, and so they kept their mouth shut and just sort of went with the flow. But Jesus had this extraordinary power and, and, and confidence And he would actually speak up against the corruption that he saw in the religious leaders. And Caiaphas didn't like that because he was at the top of that heap. And you know something? When you combine that sort of criticism with that sort of power and you speak it to the kinds of crowds that Jesus had, that spelled trouble for Caiaphas and his family. Lots of it. For three and a half years, this goes on. Caiaphas is trying to figure out how to deal with this guy. We'll see in a minute what they tried, but he's trying and trying, and the tension is building and building and building. And you know something? Every tension like that, has what we oftentimes call the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know what finally broke this? This is amazing because when the tension isn't what it's supposed to be, what usually breaks it is something actually quite simple. You know what actually broke the tension? It wasn't anything Jesus said. It wasn't some controversial truth that he taught. It wasn't anything critical that he said about the religious leaders. What actually broke it was an act of kindness. Jesus had the audacity to raise a prominent city, a prominent citizen of a suburb of Jerusalem. He had the audacity to raise him from the dead. His name was Lazarus. And that's where we'll pick up the story in the Bible. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And here's the problem. Many of the people who were with Mary, that's Lazarus's sister, who were with Mary, that's different from Jesus' mother, by the way. For those of you that don't know the Bible that well, that's okay. It's a different Mary. They believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. By the way, if you take the most popular person in the country and that person begins raising people from the dead, what happens to their popularity? People start dragging corpses. Hey, it's my mom. Yeah, Jesus, I mean, it was, he was immensely popular 
all of a sudden, I mean, not really all of a sudden, but he just blew up. And notice what happens next. The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Wow, this is tough. This can no longer be ignored. Now, for three and a half years, Caiaphas and all of his friends have tried to do one thing. Separate Jesus from the crowd. They tried to discredit Jesus, first of all, first of all, by asking him trick and loaded theological questions to make him look stupid. I love what Dr. Phil would say. So how'd that work for you? <laughs> Every time they did that, they went home looking stupid and he went on looking brilliant. Well, in truth, they didn't have any idea what they were up against. They were up against God. Right? There's no chance they were going to win. So then they, tr- they tried to question the character of his followers. He eats with sinners and the worst of sinners. And look at who's in the crowd. It's the most notorious sinners in our town. And he takes time to be with them. What kind of a rabbi has that kind of a following? And can't you see them as Jesus gets more and more popular, scratching their heads and going, it's like none of the rules for normal rabbis apply to him. Any normal rabbi who had prostitutes and tax collectors and, and swindlers and cheaters and liars and stealers, any, any rabbi that had that group of people in his crowd, no one would want to listen to him. And yet Jesus has all those people in his crowd and all kinds of other people in his crowd and everyone wants to listen to him. Yeah, they had tried to discredit Jesus in all sorts of different ways, so that they could separate him from the crowds. Because the crowds were the real problem. And now that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, it's just blowing up. So, desperate times call for what? Desperate measures. So here we go. Then the leading priests and Pharisees call the high council together. What are we going to do? They ask each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. And if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. And then notice what will happen. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. You know why they thought Jesus would... What they're actually saying is if Jesus gets more and more popular... He is going to make a power move and he's going to lead a revolt against Rome and Rome is going to win and Rome is going to come and destroy our temple and our nation. You know why they thought Jesus would do that? Listen carefully. This is a free little lesson. Because if they had that kind of popularity, that's what they would have done. So in your own heart of hearts, when you get ready to accuse somebody of something for for reasons that you're pretty sure that's why they're acting, maybe the first place you should look is in your own heart. Because oftentimes what we accuse other people of is are the thought processes that we have inside us. Okay? Now, that's what they said. So, going on, here's what happens. 
Now Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, said, you guys are nuts. You don't know what you're talking about. Why, you don't realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot to take Jesus' life. Whoa, time out. You know what you could write in your notes? The final solution. If you know anything about World War II, you know what I'm talking about. Up to this time, discredit Jesus, separate him from the crowd. But once he raised Lazarus from the dead, there was no separating him from a crowd. So now the only thing we have to do is there's only one possible solution to this. Jesus has to go. We got to kill him. And so they began to plot to take Jesus' life. What they didn't know is at the same time they were beginning this plot, Jesus was actually saying to his followers this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. There's that word again. I have authority to lay it down and to Take it up again. You know something? You cannot take something from someone if they willingly just give it. What these people didn't know, what Caiaphas didn't know, is that without realizing it, he became a willing participant in the plan that God had all along. And that is Jesus would leave heaven, he would come to earth, and eventually he would lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Which is why today, the cross is the most recognized symbol on the face of the earth, because it was on a cross that Jesus laid down his life. You could not take Jesus' life from him. So Caiaphas and his buddies arranged to have Jesus arrested. They arranged to have a mock trial. And Caiaphas taps into his position as the ambassador to Rome, the liaison between Israel and Rome. And he, and he convinces the Romans that Jesus needs to be crucified. He needs to die by crucifixion. And so Jesus is crucified. He dies. And they put him in the tomb. It's all good. It's all good. Problem solved. Jesus is gone. Crowds are gone. Life is back to normal. Everything is good. Cephas has a problem, however, and it's the same problem that you and I have. He has a conscience. And Cephas has just killed a man he knows is innocent. But you know what Caiaphas does? The same thing that you and I do oftentimes when we compromise our conscience. We find a way to frame it that makes us feel better. Anybody on board with that? Ever done that? You know what Caiaphas told himself on the way home? I might have killed an innocent man, but I saved 
my country. I'm not the villain here. I'm actually the hero. Yeah. Everything is cool till Sunday morning. There's a rap on Campus's door and there's a mob of people out in front of his palace and Campus opens the door and so what's going on? What's going on? They said, you know that guy that raised Lazarus from the dead? The guy that you just killed? He just raised himself. <laughs> what? Now we'll get into more of that story as we walk more toward Easter. But I, I just want to fast forward and tell you the rest of Campus's life. And then we're going to apply this to ourselves. The, f- the first thing that you need to know is that Caiaphas died only three years after Jesus did. And what about his family? Well, in less than 30 years, everything that they had worked for was gone. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed. The palace was destroyed. The Jews were killed by the millions. They were dispersed around the world. And it all crumbled and it all fell apart. It was all gone. Because in the end, here's what he illustrated. The futility of resisting God. Again, not because God's large and in charge, but because God is for you. Right? And if God is for you and you resist him, you always end up with what? Less. Less. And you may end up with nothing. So here's how this applies to you and me. Saying yes to Jesus always costs us something. You know, oftentimes when you say yes to your conscience, you realize it would be easier if I just blew through my conscience and did what I wanted to do. Right? Can we admit that in church? Yep. And we've all done that many times. You know why? It's the same because whether you follow Jesus or not, God speaks to you through your conscience. He loves you. And he's constantly at work in your life. And he's trying to help you to avoid the, the, the ditches in life that are not fun. Saying yes to Jesus will always cost us something. But here's an important part, and that is saying no to Jesus will always cost us more. Got it? Saying yes to Jesus will always cost us something, but saying no to Jesus will always cost us more. Not because he will make sure of it, but here's what I want you to know. On the inside of all of us, there's a space that 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 is designed for God. You were made, as the Bible says, in his image. There's a place in there that, that's designed for God. The problem is, oftentimes, we like to put something else in the, in the epicenter of our life. For Caiaphas, it was his power and his position and his family and his nation and the high priesthood and his wealth. That, that, those were all the things that were at the epicenter of his life. But friends, Do you realize what the Bible calls those and what they turn out to be? They're they're what I would call the little G gods or the little gods. 
And as we wrap up, I want to teach you three things about the little gods. Number one, the little gods set us up for destructive behavior. They do. If you take God out of that place and you put anything else in there that now you feel like you have to preserve and prop up and protect and, 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 and you have to own this thing and you have to protect it and, and, and so forth and you really can't trust God with it, that, that little God, whatever it is, it could be a relationship that you have that you know is not good for you, but you don't want to let go of it. It could be a promotion you have at work and in order to keep that promotion, you have to fudge sales numbers now and then. In order to make a big sale, you have to sort of cook the numbers on what that sale could do for your potential client so that your client will buy it, believing that it will do that. And when the client gets it, they realize, well, it didn't actually do that. There are all sorts of ways in which we try to protect and prop up and preserve something that we, we don't feel like we can trust God with. For Caiaphas, he ended up killing an innocent man, murdering an innocent man. I wish you could be in my office and hear how many times people have come into me and they have said, Pastor, if anyone would have told me when I was a kid that I would end up doing what I have done, I would have said, no way. Because the little gods always set us up for destructive behavior. Secondly, the little gods always disappoint. They promise big and they deliver little. They always do. And the interesting thing is, the longer that you protect that little god, the more demanding that little god gets and the less delivery that little god supplies. And the third thing is this the little gods eventually disappear. They did in Caiaphas' life, and they will in yours and mine. So, with that as a backdrop, we're right back to where we started, and that is this. God knows best, and when we resist, we always get less. So I have a question for you, and, and, and it's, it's just a wonderful question if you want to know, how do I move forward in this? I think here's the question that God would ask us. What are you hanging on to right now that you should actually trust God with? It will be different for every person sitting here. What are you hanging on to? And then the real question is, why not trust God with that today? See, there's a little chaos in all of us. Have you noticed? And there's a little bit of us in Caiaphas. You probably noticed that too, because we're all human beings. So I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray that right now, as we do some business with God, that during this week, that, that those two things will just recycle in our minds. God knows best. And when I resist, I always get less. So what am I hanging on to right now? that I should actually trust God with. Let me pray. God, thank you so much, so, so much that even though there's a lot of bad boy in us, that there's so many ways we can relate to Caiaphas 
Thank you that you loved Caiaphas. And you really tried to reach him. You tried to help him write a different ending to the story of his life. And thank you that you're doing that with us. Would you give us ears to hear you this week? Would you give, our, give us a heart that instead of resisting, would surrender? So that, we, so that whatever it is that right now, we're having a tendency to trust more than you or at least not to trust you with. That this would be a week where we trust you with that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.